Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. A treaty to ban the use of nuclear weapons becomes international law on January 22nd, 2021. This is the date the treaty will enter into force, having secured the requisite number of ratifications from countries around the world. At time of recording, 86 countries have signed the treaty, and 51 have ratified it. The treaty seeks to do to nuclear weapons what previous international treaties have done to chemical and biological weapons, that is, prohibit their use on humanitarian grounds. Securing the entry into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has been a years-long effort, and at the center of it all has been my guest today, Beatrice Finn. She is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for its work on this treaty. The last time Beatrice Finn and I spoke was just a few weeks after she received the call that her organization had won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I kick off this conversation by asking her what impact winning the prize has had on her work and on progress on the treaty. We then spend the bulk of this episode discussing what exactly this treaty obliges of its member states, and also the broader politics surrounding the effort to get countries to sign on to the treaty. Now, so far, none of the treaty's state parties are nuclear weapons states, nor are they member states of NATO. Still, as Beatrice Finn explains, the treaty nonetheless is already having a big impact on international affairs. So I recorded this episode a few months ago, but I was holding it until this week, which also, of course, happens to be the week in which Joe Biden will be inaugurated as president of the United States. And just kind of reflecting back, I wonder what event will be more remembered, say, 50 or 100 years from now, the entry into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons or Biden's inauguration following the disastrous events of January 6. To be honest, I don't know, uh, but I do know that this episode is an excellent guide to help you understand what this treaty entails and also the broader international politics surrounding it. All right, now here is my conversation with Beatrice Finn, Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Yeah, I mean, it was pretty overwhelming. I think in particular for um, a campaign like ours that was quite uh, small, didn't have a lot of funding, didn't have a lot of attention. Um, I think it's different if you are, say, Barack Obama, right, winning it. Uh, it probably makes less of a difference then. But for us, we were quite... Yeah, small and overwhelmed really with the attention. Um, and now and afterwards, I just remember feeling a lot of pressure uh, that, you know, we have this moment and uh, almost sort of um, everything is moving so fast through the decision where you get the announcement and then the ceremony in Oslo. And did we make the most out of it? Did we reach as many people as we should have reached? Uh, I think you, you sort of, it's it's a bit overwhelming, especially if you haven't gone through anything similar to that before. I almost feel like you need to do it twice to <laughs> practice first. Though you know, I know that the Red Cross, for example, they've gotten it three times. You know, they probably got it nailed at this point. Uh, what to do? Um, no, but it's been really amazing, and I think in particular it was amazing um, to see it. And I think that we share that with World Food Program, for example, that it's not an individual. But it's actually a, a big organization, a big movement. Um, and a lot of people find these issues, you know, they, they want to see the individuals. They want to see people like Malala or MLK. Um, but I think, you know, in reality, it's not individuals that really make a difference on these issues. It's, it's movements, it's international organizations, it's international law, it's diplomacy. Things that to maybe media and public attention is quite you know, boring, they don't see the impact immediately because it's such long-term issues. But it really, really makes, you know, that that's really what drives change in many of these things and change that are is sustainable and don't just disappear if something goes wrong. So for, for me, I think it was really important to also highlight that movement building is important. It's not just about being a, a, a very sort of high level person, a president or something, but that even young activists from all over the world can yeah. can make a difference. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, we don't know each other personally. I, I don't think we've ever met in person, but I can identify with you because I've been sort of around at the NGO community for mm. a long time. I you know, know people who are activists, who are advocates for causes. So it was really interesting, for example, to follow you on social media in the days after and see a person I could easily identify with, like sitting next to the Pope in some yeah. ceremony. So that was, that <laughs> so was pretty bizarre, interesting. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but, but getting to your, your broader point, I think your more important point, uh, you know, how did the conferring of the prize affect the process of ratification of the uh of, of the treaty did you see any impact any result uh in in having earned the prize and then having more and more countries kind of sign on to the treaty i think there was a lot of indirect sort of impact uh the nobel prize unfortunately in some cases doesn't make that governments immediately change their minds. It's not like you win a Nobel Prize and then you go to the United States or to Russia and they're like, okay, let's get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, I wish it was like that. Uh, but you know, but it did give us the visibility. It gave, gave us credibility. It opened up a lot of doors for us in terms of requesting meetings. Suddenly foreign ministers, for example, wanted to meet with us. Um, suddenly the diplomats that have been deeply involved in this process felt like there was their prize too. It might have gone to ICANN, but everyone who was involved in the treaty were part of it. So it really uh, helped us kind of solidify the support we already have um, to make sure that people took the treaty more seriously. 
uh, it's quite easy to ignore some activists that you think are nagging you. But suddenly when it comes with the Nobel Peace Prize, it just gets more weight and mm. and people sort of take your meeting and answer your phone calls much more than when you do before. So I think in that way, we, we had an easier time and it kind of helped us uh, push the right, you know, open the right doors and, and get us in. It didn't change things drastically in terms of government policies, so, but it did help. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to maybe go back a, a little bit and introduce listeners to the idea, the concept of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So can you um, sort of briefly go back and explain where did the idea of the treaty come from and how did we get to this moment uh, coming in January where the treaty will enter into force? I think the basic idea was really we need to treat nuclear weapons as a weapon. Uh, in the past, and the way we've treated nuclear weapons before is very different to all other weapons. And yes, it is a unique weapon in terms of its explosive power and its long-term impact and the radioactive um, part of it. But it's just a weapon still. Uh, It's not magic. It's not sort of, uh, it's not a natural kind of occurrence that we just have it and we always have to have it. And what have we done with other weapons? that we think are are bad weapons and shouldn't exist, we ban them. And nuclear weapons is really the only weapon in the world that we've tried to, that all governments have kind of agreed that we should eliminate, but we still think that they are super important and needs to stay. And it's this kind of hypocrisy around nuclear weapons that nobody else can have them, but I should have them as long as someone else has them. And they're really, really important for my security, but they cannot be important for your security. So what we tried to do was very much inspired by you know, how we dealt with chemical weapons, how we dealt with biological weapons, how we dealt with landmines and cluster munitions. Well, they were treaty-based sort of prohibitions that, you know, ban them. And and through the ban, you can start eliminating it. Nuclear weapons is is the only weapon we try to keep legal and eliminate it at the same time. We need to ban something first if we're going to be able to eliminate it. So that was really the whole idea. And to sort of base that on the humanitarian law, the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. Um, You know, we have the Geneva Conventions that say that civilians should not be targets. It's illegal to target civilians in warfare. But nuclear weapons, that's what they are built to do. They're built to wipe out whole cities. These these are not for position guidance military targets. These are meant to cause maximum deaths of civilians. It's like the inherent indiscriminate nature of nuclear weapons makes them like de facto illegal. To use, yeah, absolutely. So you need to put that in a treaty uh, because a lot of the nuclear arms states, they know this. They know it's, it's you know, impossible to use these weapons in accordance with the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war, yet they keep them and they keep threatening to use them, um, saying that, well, we're not going to use them, so we can do whatever we want. But eventually they will be used. And then what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the treaty was negotiated at the United Nations in 2017. Is that correct? Yeah, through the UN General Assembly. So we bypassed the consensus bodies of the United Nations and the international system and went to the General Assembly instead, which operates with a majority vote. Uh, and I think this is part of a, a bigger trend as well in international relations that you know, there's so much polarization, there's so much uh, different contexts, regional conflicts. There's always someone in the world who is objecting to everything right now. Uh, and we see that, I think, in the Security Council, in human rights issues, on climate change, that there's, 
you know, we can't operate with consensus at the moment. You know, much of what the UN does is by consensus, especially major treaties. Uh, any single country can often offer objections and that might stall or upend a treaty making process or some sort of broader negotiation or even actually on budget issues at the UN. Um, but, uh, here you're saying you, you wanted to bypass that consensus process and go straight to the General Assembly where a majority rules. Exactly. So the the General Assembly set up a negotiating conference with majority rules, and we got about 122 countries that were part of adopting this treaty in the General Assembly uh, in 2017, and it opened for signature a couple of months later. Uh, And since then, you know, we've really been working to get the sort of minimum requirement for this treaty to to enter into force, which was uh, 50 ratifications. Uh, And we got that in October. Okay, and and was like Honduras was the fiftieth. Yeah, uh, Is, how did they manage that? Like, was there a uh, some behind the scenes negotiations to get Honduras to be the fiftieth to trigger well, the entry into force? It was really a race. It was a lot of countries who wanted to be a part of the fifty first, uh, and that's why we also saw an increase in the in the pace in the last two three months before that. Um, it also coincided with being quite close to the seventy fifth anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki which was in August this year. So we, we had like a big momentum there and there was a lot of countries that were trying to, to get in. Um, and we had three countries within two days that ratified. Uh, I think, yeah, it was Jamaica and, and then Honduras came in as the number 50. The treaty will enter into force. Uh, what does that oblige it, its member states? Well, the treaty then uh, obliges that you don't uh, possess, use, test, develop, manufacture, and stockpile nuclear weapons. Um, it also prevents you, uh, prohibits you from assisting and encouraging those kind of acts. Uh, so you're not allowed to help a nuclear armed states develop nuclear weapons, for example. Um, it also it also requires that you kind of initiate support and assistance to victims of nuclear use and nuclear testing and environmental remediation. And these are quite um, unspecified in how. So this is something that will be part of the process of the treaty in the coming years to to look into that. Like, how can we support uh, impacted communities in Kazakhstan, for example? How can we support communities in Algeria, in Marshall Islands, in all these places where the nuclear arms states have basically poisoned people? Uh, for decades through their nuclear testing. And another thing that the governments have to do under this treaty is that they have now a legal obligation to get more countries to join the treaty under its Article 12. So Article 12 says that all governments are now required to work to universalize, to get all the governments in the world to join this treaty. So hopefully we can also work with these 50 as the the foundation, the, the sort of first core group of states uh, that are part of this treaty to also make sure that we don't stop at 50, uh, that it becomes really a treaty that all countries in the world are a part of. It's probably fair to say uh, that the countries that signed the treaty and those that ratified the treaty are countries uh, that have you know, no interest in nuclear weapons or nuclear tech or, or in nuclear weapons themselves and are already maybe predisposed to being anti-nuclear weapons. However, you know, NATO countries, European countries, certainly no nuclear capable states uh, signed the treaty. In fact, they actively uh, opposed it. Um, in what ways is the treaty now that it will enter into force, you know, impacting calculations in those 
nuclear weapons states? Well, I think that the treaty, I mean, we have some countries, for example, like South Africa, that used to have nuclear weapons uh, that no longer has them. Uh, And you have countries like Kazakhstan, for example, who, when the Soviet Union fell apart, had nuclear weapons on its territory and decided to remove them and, and, and send them to, to Moscow because they did not, when they became independent, they did not want to be a nuclear arms state. You also have one of the core group of countries, uh, Brazil, uh, who has signed a treaty. They have not yet ratified it in the process. Um, that was a country that was exploring nuclear weapons in the 60s and, and, and for quite a long time were, were, were part of that kind of thinking and has this ambition of being a Security Council permanent member and a world power in that way. Um, but without nuclear weapons. So there's still a lot of these countries that are, you know, that, that have played a role in the nuclear weapons history in the past. Um, and I think that the first 50, and we're aiming obviously to, to go higher with this from now on, um, are countries that are also driving, have been driving other treaties, such as the Landmine Treaty, the Cluster Munitions Treaty. Um, and can set the pace and set a high standard of what's acceptable uh, under international law. I mean, nuclear weapons is kind of part of a lot of structures. If you look at the permanent members of the Security Council, for example, but now there is an international law that is going to create a new norm that says that nuclear weapons are not okay. Uh, They're illegal and they should not exist. No one should have them. And that's going to start interfering with this kind of in the, the current way of allowing nuclear weapons and accepting that some countries have nuclear weapons and create a normative pressure on them. And we've seen how that works. We've seen it on other weapons issues. We've seen it on human rights issues, on, on all these, on climate change, for example, as well, how the progressive states can sort of set the pace, set the tempo uh, and start kind of putting more pressure on governments. Uh, it's, it's, much more important to do it that way and then to wait for the worst countries to lead, which is just not going to happen. What countries do you think you might peel off in, in Europe, for example? I mean, it seems right now that much of Europe, at least um, you know, NATO member states, might feel that the nuclear security umbrella they have with the United States uh, may not be compatible with signing this treaty. You know, Europe, though, historically, of course, has been, you know, a leader in kind of drawing up new forms of international laws. Many of the, the weapons conventions you cited, like landmines and, and biological and chemical weapons, these, you know, were, were European initiatives at one point. Um, is there a European country that you think might be the vanguard here in signing and, and ratifying the treaty? Yeah, I mean, we have we have uh, some European countries that have been leading countries, for example, like Austria and Ireland that have been very part of the core group of developing the, this treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, we have the, the big issue of NATO countries, uh, countries that are really complicit in nuclear weapons and are actually allowing nuclear weapons to stay. Um, and I think that in the past, they have sort of been, you know, sliding under the radar when it comes to this issue. We've been putting a lot of focus on the nuclear arms states, on Russia, on the United States, which, of course, are the two biggest nuclear arms states. But countries like Germany, for example, whose military is 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 preparing to, to use nuclear weapons, to drop weapons of mass destruction on civilian populations. And these are countries, Netherlands, Italy, Belgium, for example. These are countries that pride themselves on their humanitarian sort of... Um, on their humanitarian perspective on things, on international humanitarian law, on their human rights record, for example. And this treaty has really exposed the hypocrisy 
of these countries, that they are portraying themselves as champions for disarmament, yet they want to keep the option of mass murdering civilians with weapons of mass destruction. And they think that's okay, it should be legal. And I think that that's really putting a lot of, of, of um, pressure. And I think that's why they're being so defensive about this treaty, because it really puts a spotlight on that hypocrisy. And it also highlights that their populations absolutely do not want nuclear weapons. We consistently poll these countries and strong majorities. We had a poll in Belgium, for example, uh, just last week that shows that 66% of the population not only wants Belgium to join the treaty, but would like Belgium to be the first country to join, the first NATO country to join the treaty. Uh, they do not want American nuclear weapons on the territory. It's a huge risk uh, and a security threat to, that, to them and to their future. Uh, so I, I think that what we're seeing is that the treaty also allows people in these countries who have not had a voice on this issue before to express that. Um, and we've had some some progress in a country like Belgium where the new government declaration, for example, through a, a political party that's very supportive of the treaty and wants to join the treaty, put that into the, the government uh, platform negotiations and got a reference in the Belgium gov uh, government declaration that Belgium should work with other NATO states to kind of explore how the TPNW can be used. It's a very vague reference and compromise. But it sort of shows that there is pressure. Mm -hmm. um, we know so there's an election in Germany, for example, yeah. later this year. So, I mean, I mean, does it really come down to like a series of domestic campaigns in these uh, countries in order to try to try to like, you know, tip the politics in a way favorable to the treaty? I, I think so. And I think that the, the public opinion is there. Uh, mm. But I think it's ma mainly about getting um, the public to express that in a stronger way and to make sure that there are consequences for the politicians to not listen to that. Um, that it becomes a part of election campaigns, for example, and that it's people that think the media covers. And then I think we can see a very quick change because there, and this is why also we see the United States, UK and France um, coming down so strongly against the treaty because they know that when the first NATO country flips and joins this treaty, many more will follow. And then the whole structure that upholds nuclear weapons will crumble. One thing that I found really interesting uh, as I've been following the process and the progress of the treaty since we last spoke a few years ago is um, this idea around the stigmatization of nuclear weapons seems to be gaining traction in, in ways that people might not realize. For example, there have been, I think, some successful divestment campaigns uh, around um, – you know, holdings that somehow support the production of nuclear weapons in ways that, uh, frankly, you know, don't get a lot of press attention, but I was interested and surprised to see. Can you just sort of describe that process and, and how that's worked? Absolutely. I think that this is a really key part of our work as well, is that, you know, of course, we, we want governments to join this treaty, but there are also all these other ways that the treaty can work. And divestment is a clear cut that we've seen have a huge impact on other weapons. Um, once there's a treaty, an international law that bans these weapons, and these big sort of banks and financial institutions, the hedge funds, they all operate globally. So for them, international law really matters, and they can't adjust the things based on which country signs currently or not. Um, so when a treaty exists, they have to relate to that treaty on an international level. 
So based on that, we are, are kind of drawing attention to which companies that are building nuclear weapons and urging banks that operates globally that now they have to adjust to this new treaty and they have to pull their investments. And we've seen that be really effective in issues like cluster munitions, for example. During the cluster munitions convention negotiations, the United States, Russia, China, they did not participate. They didn't show up. They haven't joined the treaty. But for the U.S., for example, um, because of the, the, the new treaty, just a few years after that, the last American producer, Textron, a weapons company, stopped making cluster munitions. Because they, and they cited to their shareholders that it was because there's a ban on these weapons, so we don't see that it has a strong future. Uh, no matter if the U.S. signs or not, it's just it's going out of fashion. And we're being blacklisted by a lot of big banks because mm. of this. So it makes no business sense. And this is not a humanitarian company, right? It's a weapons company. They make weapons. <laughs> it's their profit. So they didn't do that for humanitarian reasons. It was just a very practical business decision. So what we're doing now is that we, we're listing the companies that make nuclear weapons and we're highlighting to banks that their customers, in, in large, don't want them to invest their money. They don't want their pension funds to be uh, going to nuclear weapons. And, and through there, putting a lot more pressure on the companies and ultimately the governments. Have you had any success to that end yet? Absolutely. We've, uh, we've, we release an annual report called Don't Bank on the Bomb, where we track all of this. And there's always new banks coming in. Um, we, we see that, uh, you know, I was in Davos last year and we see, for example, that the sustainable financing and ethical investment, it's becoming much more of an important thing for all banks and pension funds and financial institutions. So we're seeing a, a huge interest. We had, for example, um, after work by German campaigners, Deutsche Bank putting in a new policy. We saw one of the big Japanese banks, uh, earlier this year come in to, um, change their policies as well. Um, I mean, this is very complicated financial <laughs> investments, so it's, it's difficult to always t- t- to know exactly, but they are definitely tightening up their policies. Um, several pension funds, t- two of the five biggest pension funds in the world have sold off their assets in nuclear weapons producing companies. Um, so we really see that it's something that we're, we're able to make a huge difference with whether or not these countries join the treaty. Mm-hmm. And basically, what, what are the, some of the biggest companies? Like, I'm thinking like Boeing, maybe like Boeing, what are the, Airbus, oh, yeah. Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, all these you know weapons companies are, are really mm-hmm. huge. Northrop and you're Gunman. saying those those giant uh, the the giant pension funds that you just referenced, the large have divested from those companies specifically exactly. over nuclear issues. That's exactly. interesting. Like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example, which is oh. I think the top, top five in in the world. Uh, and Norway hasn't joined the treaty because they're a NATO member. Hmm. So it still means that they have to start relating to this international law. Um, so where do you see the um, the campaign and the treaty going over the course of, say, the next year, the first year of entry into force? So what we're planning on to do is first make a, a big fuss about the entry into force uh, and to really mark that as a moment of change. Um, to start highlighting really which activities are now illegal under international law. Now, of course, it doesn't apply to the nuclear arms states because they haven't joined it, so we can't take them to court based on the treaty. But we can still kind of stigmatize the behavior. Uh, It's not normal behavior to test ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, that carry nuclear weapons that would kill millions of people 
That's not normal behavior. It is illegal under this treaty. So when they do that next time, when they test these missiles, we will protest and say international law bans this. Um, when University of California, for example, uh, sets up their projects to build new nuclear warheads, um, uh, we will sort of rally people, university students, uh, faculty, to say that, you know, international law bans this kind of behavior. Like, we shouldn't be violating international law. Uh, we should use our um, our science departments for, for, for something good in the world, not to destroy the world. Um, when we, for example, see the the budget discussions about buying new nuclear or uh, fighter planes that could carry nuclear weapons in Germany, for example, we will sort of rally and mobilize people that this is illegal under international law to do this. We shouldn't be pouring all these billions of euros into these airplanes or the weapon that is being banned right now. Uh, so we're trying to mobilize that. We also have, of course, um, within a year of the treaties entering into force, it's the first meeting of states' parties. Um, so that's also where we will start working on this victim assistance and environmental remediation. And to me, those uh, aspects of the treaty is extremely important because that can really have a concrete impact on people's lives. Um, real people, communities that have suffered from this. And in many cases, these communities are uh, marginalized communities, uh, indigenous communities, populations that did not matter to the nuclear powers uh, when they used nuclear weapons on, the, on, the, on their territories. So really to, to set up support. So if we, with this treaty, can do anything to help these communities, I, I think it will be extremely, you know, this treaty will, will have worked. It will have been a success, uh, no matter what the nuclear arms states says about it. Uh, well, Beatrice, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Beatrice. That was great. And it'll be interesting to see how Europe approaches this in the coming years, I think. In any case, as always, feel free to reach out to me. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I look forward to hearing from you. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.